Jesus said, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It's like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden and it grew and it became a tree and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It's like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. So what is he talking about? You know the song, from little things, big things grow. Favourite of children's choirs. Is your choir singing that, Lauren? No. From little things, big things grow. Uh, Well, that's pretty much what it's talking about. The kingdom of God was going to start off as this tiny, insignificant blip. And it was going to grow. It was going to take on a life all of its own. And how distant those words of Jesus must have seemed to Jesus' disciples when he was nailed to the cross. They must have thought, well, somebody's just gotten out and given those seedlings a, a goodly dose of Roundup. You know, she's all over now. They're, right? Well, there goes the hope for our kingdom of God. I don't think they had a great deal of hope for the growth of the kingdom of God. The first thing they did, of course, when Jesus was crucified is they went and cowered behind locked doors, afraid to even be known as Jesus' disciples. How unreal it must have all seemed that this kingdom of God was just going to start growing. That is, of course, until the day that God's Holy Spirit came upon the church at Pentecost. Because that's when God's Holy Spirit started to motivate the church. At that point, everything changed. And the book of Acts is exactly the story of the growth of the mustard seed It's the, into the largest of the garden plants. It's the story of a little bit of yeast having an effect on a whole lump of dough. It's the story of 30 years that changed the world as the good news of Jesus Christ spread throughout the world. We've been working our way through this book of Acts And up until this point, the church has been growing, but it seems like it's been happening almost by accident. A handful of Christians started out in Jerusalem. And then when the Holy Spirit came upon them, in nearly no time, it grew into the thousands. And then when they were persecuted, they had to get out of Jerusalem and run for their lives. But of course, everywhere they went, they carried the gospel with them. And it was seemingly almost by accident that the church began to spread and continued to grow. Everywhere that the persecuted Christians fled, people were now turning to Jesus. And now, in today's reading, Acts chapter 13, it becomes very clear that there's really nothing accidental about it. It was all the work of God's Holy Spirit. And it's becoming really clear to me, as we work our way through this book of Acts, just how, it is, just how important it is for us to grasp this. Acts describes how the kingdom of God grows as disciples of Jesus Christ stop making their own plans and begin listening to God, as they stop living for themselves and begin to live for Christ. Now, the Christian church that we know best, of course, is is the one that's around us, the one that's in the Western world. And it's pretty obvious to me, and probably to you, I'd reckon as well, that it's a far cry from the, from the church that we read about in the book of Acts. And even the way that we do things here is a long way from the Acts church. 
I've been to a lot of different church growth seminars. I've heard lots and lots and lots of speakers talk about church growth. And most of them, if, I'm, if I was to sum them up, most of them, well, what they're doing is they're really pushing a business model for the church. Um, and you can get all sorts of messages from it. You know, you might, you might hear, you know, your church, it has to have a mission statement and a strategic plan so that everybody can get on the same page and keep pushing along with that mission statement and that strategic plan. Or maybe you'll get told to read a certain book. You know, so-and-so, this is a book about so-and-so and they grew their church from a 100 to a 1,000, you know, and you'll get a few good ideas from that and your church will grow too if you start bringing this into place. And then we get told to start identifying things like atmosphere and coffee machines and, and how they're going to make our church a place where people really feel welcome because we've got to get the atmosphere right. Uh, and then maybe we can put in a strategic place, a strategic way of raising up leaders and developing leaders. Or maybe we get told we need an evangelism campaign or a stewardship campaign because your church can't pay the bills. Maybe we need to put together a, a leadership team of truly excellent personnel and once we get the right people, that, if there, she's going to fly beautifully. Or maybe we get told we have to change the way we do the sermon. The sermon has to be something um, which, which makes people feel really good about themselves. That way they'll want to come back next week so they can feel really good about themselves again. And I've even seen churches start to employ spin doctors. Of course, they don't call them spin doctors, but what they do is they employ people to, to see what's happening in the media and so, and so they can market themselves so that they can sound really good in, in the face of the world and they also manage the bad publicity. And I've seen people push themselves to get excited about these sorts of initiatives because the only other alternative that they've ever been exposed to is a shrinking, dying church which is gasping for breath and just trying desperately to hang on for one more generation. We've just got to keep, keep this dream alive for this one more generation to live the nostalgia of its glory days when it first began. You know what? The more I think about that, the less it sounds to me at all like the growth of a mustard seed. Something which is growing of its own accord. It just doesn't sound anything like that. It doesn't sound anything at all like the growth of yeast and the rising of dough. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 7 says, It's only God who gives growth. What place do our plans and our strategies have in that? But you might say to me, Michael, we have to have some kind of plan. Otherwise, nothing's going to happen other than decline. That's the only thing that can happen without a plan. But my response would be, can't you see that when we seek God, God will grow his church. God will show us where to go. God will show us how we are to be. And God will grow his church. Barnabas and Saul, later he was called Paul, and it's actually within this reading where, where his name makes that change from, from Saul to Paul, uh, they were sent out as missionaries by the church. And yet in verse 4 it says that they were sent out by the Holy Spirit. So who sent them out? The Holy Spirit or the church? Do we have to make a choice? You know what this is telling me? This is telling me the Holy Spirit is speaking to the church. The Holy Spirit is moving the church to, to work on his behalf. So who's doing the sending? Who's in charge of that church? We could bring that close to home. Who's in charge of this church? Michael? 
I hope not. You're in trouble if he is. Um, a, a few of the older, more mature Christians, I hope not about that too. Well, it can't be a larger denominational headquarters that's in charge because we're not even affiliated with anyone. Who's in charge of this church? Well, let me tell you, it can either be all of us together as a democracy or it can be Jesus Christ through his Holy Spirit. Which one do you want it to be? Now, I, I know if we were to ask most Christians this, we'd all say, oh, we want Jesus to be in charge of our church. But then when we actually start managing the church, we actually get to see who's really in charge of the church. Uh, because while we give lip service to Jesus, yeah, we want Jesus to be in charge of the church, most of our decisions usually reflect us. And we're in charge of the church. Now, it would probably be much safer for you if I was leading the church. It would probably be a lot less taxing for you if you were leading the church. But that's not the way you want it to be. I've seen your heads nodding and shaking at the appropriate times. You want the church here to be led by the Holy Spirit. And I do too. What does that look like? What does it look like for the Holy Spirit to be leading a church? Well, I think we can learn a fair bit from this church at Antioch that we just read about. Firstly, they were a fellowship from all walks of life. It listed some of the leaders there. Uh, there was Barnabas and Simeon. There was Lucius and Manian and Saul. And these were all very different from one another. Some of them were from high classes of society. Some of them from low classes. They were from different nations. They were different races. They were different colours. Barnabas was a Christian leader and he'd come from Jerusalem. Right? So he was already part of the church leadership in Jerusalem. Then there was Simeon. Now, these days, I was waiting to see how that was going to get pronounced. Um, Justin pronounced it as Niger, because that's how it's written, N-I-G-E-R. But it's terribly politically incorrect these days. Um, But you know how you pronounce that word in the Greek? Nigger. And you know what it means in the Greek? It means nigger. That's exactly what it means. He was a darkie, right? Now, that's... We might get our 2015 knickers in a knot for, uh, all about racism, but we need to remember this is the first century we're talking about. This was his nickname. He was one of the Christian brothers and they loved him like a brother. They weren't being racist to him. That was his nickname, nigger. And you know why he had that dark nickname? He was dark. Uh, some people have speculated that this Simeon was probably Simon of Cyrene. Who are we? Who, can anybody tell me what he was famous for? He carried Jesus' cross once he was knocked up. I don't know if you ever knew that. Cyrene's North Africa. Uh, so he's a black man. You know? And it was probably the racism of the, of the Roman soldier. Saw him there. Yeah, you'll be a good beast of burden. Carry that for old mate. You know? So it's been speculated that this is the same fellow, but we don't know that. But that probably speculation comes into there because the very next person they list is Lucius from Cyrene. Right? So Lucius, he's definitely from North Africa. He's most probably a black fellow too. Then there's Manion. 
and he was a lifelong friend of King Herod. Wow, what a difference in contrast now. Isn't this amazing? This fella, he was brought up in a royal household. And to me, a bigger amazing thing is we've got two young fellas who grew up together. One becomes a Christian and a leader in the church. The other one is the one who became king and beheaded John the Baptist. And later on, he took part in the trial of Jesus. Where you come from doesn't define who you are. It's how you respond to Jesus Christ that defines who you are. And of course, then there was Saul. He was a a trained and zealous Pharisee. He used to hunt down Christians and have them arrested. um, And we're told that he used to even oversee the execution of Christians. But now he was just about to become a missionary for Jesus Christ. And so the Christian fellowship, and this is just the leadership team, they come from all different walks of life. How is it that a group of people coming from such vastly different backgrounds can all work together, hearing from God and being led by the Holy Spirit? I'll tell you how. It wasn't because Menion had grown up in the royal household and therefore he had really good leadership skills to be able to, to hold people together. It wasn't because Paul had had good theological training as a Pharisee. It was a unity of the Holy Spirit. A unity of the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. There's two spiritual gifts listed here. A gift of prophecy and a gift of teaching. Now, the gift of prophecy is where God gives some, God can speak to a church or to an individual through another person. Gift of teaching is what I'm doing now. Teaching you from the word of God. Opening it up to help you to understand it. Now, when God chooses to speak through a nobody, the whole church is blessed. When God gives somebody a gift of being able to teach, the whole church is blessed. And God gets the glory. And it's, they're both to be used for the building up of the church. And the whole church is blessed. And that's the way it works with all of the spiritual gifts. Now, and that's why people from such vastly different areas, from vastly different walks of life, could all come together and be leaders in the church. You know, most churches, when they're electing their elders or their leadership team, who do we elect? We elect the businessmen, we elect the professionals, we choose the well-educated, we choose the well-spoken. But when God builds his church, he very often chooses the nobodies. He equips ordinary men and women, people like you and I. He gives them gifts. Now, we don't all end up with the same gifts, but he empowers us with his Holy Spirit to do in the name of Christ all that we are not qualified to do. I could never be qualified to get up here and teach to you the word of God. I'm not that clever. But by the grace of God, he's given me a gift of being able to do just that. And so I've got nothing to be proud of because I know I'm hopeless. If you start to understand the word of God today, it's not because of me. It's because what God's doing in your heart. But in his grace, God has chosen to use me anyway. And that's what God does. And none of us can be proud of the position that we have in the church. Just, we're just merely different parts of the body, all, all working together to serve Christ. 
Now, some people will be part of a church all of their life and never feel that they have anything at all to offer God. And so they never find their place in serving him. That's sad. I want you to know something. None of us have anything that we can offer God. I don't have anything that I can offer God and neither do you. All God wants is our availability and our willingness to be given spiritual gifts to be used for the building of his kingdom. And if you're sitting here today thinking, well, I'm one of those who have nothing to offer him. I want you to rethink. Do you realise that makes you exactly the right person to serve God? If you realise you've got nothing to offer him, then you're exactly the right person to serve him. Because God wants our availability. He wants our willingness. So we can say to him, Lord, I have nothing to offer you but I'm willing to be your servant in whatever capacity you equip me. And the Lord may give you a gift of preaching. I don't know. He may give you a gift of teaching. He may give you a gift of love, where you can just give the love of God to those who have never experienced love. He may give you a gift of mercy where there's people who are hurting and you can just sit beside them and be empathetic with them. He may give you a gift of serving where you can help set up before church and take stuff down afterwards, where you can go and clean the house for someone who's sick and make them a meal. He might give you a gift of giving where you have the ability to earn money and he puts it on your heart to just live a little bit more simply so you can support ministry. He might give you a gift of prophecy where God actually speaks to you a word to share with another person. He may give you a gift of evangelism where you can, you feel you can just need to invite people to come to church, where you invite people to come to Bible study, where you can, can then start sharing with him your faith that you've experienced in Jesus. He may give you a gift of helping others where you can go and mow the lawn for a widow He may give you a gift of prayer. And we really appreciate the way a lot of you pray for us. And and you can pray for the building of God's kingdom in this place. We can pray for that God would come into the hearts of people in this district. The church is a body and the spiritual gifts are so that we can function as a body. And we can see at the church in Antioch that they were a church who were utilising these spiritual gifts. And that's the way that people from all different walks of life all have something to offer. Thirdly, the church at Antioch were a church who worshipped. They worshipped, they prayed, they fasted. Somebody once said, Prayer does not enable us to do a greater work for God. Prayer is a greater work for God. I think that's a pretty good statement. Prayer does not enable us to do a greater work for God. Prayer is a greater work for God. 
And it was in this context of prayer, worship and fasting that God spoke to them. But let me say this. It's not a matter of routine. It's a matter for the heart. You know, we... I talked about business models and everything before. We, we are a people of routine. We want formulas that we can put stuff together. And if I view this, uh, this worship, prayer and fasting as a three-part formula that provided that we put these things together, mix them all up in the right quantities, that, then everything's going to go swimmingly. Well, we've, we've missed the whole point. If I was to say, right, we're going to bring into this church a culture of worship, and we're going to start all these prayer groups, and I expect everybody to be coming, by the way, and everybody has to come and pray, and we're going to start fasting once a week, because even though it makes us hungry, uh, we, we actually know from scriptures that it's actually a, a, a good spiritual discipline to take part in. And if we do that and think, right, because we're doing all of this stuff, uh, then we can expect that by doing all of these things that God's going to speak to us, then we're missing the whole point. It's not a matter of process. It's not a matter of ticking all the right boxes. It's a matter of the heart. And so what I'm asking you today is how's your heart with God? What's going on in your heart? What does Jesus Christ mean to you? You know, when we're thankful for the cross... We worship him, don't we? When your heart is filled with thankfulness, we worship him. When our heart can can begin to grasp the beauty of our Saviour, the the, um, unspeakable complexity of our God and his power, it leads us to worship. Do you want to see the kingdom of God grow? Does your heart break for your next door neighbour who doesn't need Jesus? And We're going to pray, aren't we? And if we love our Lord, we're going to want to communicate with him, aren't we? We're going to pray. Is your love for God a sacrificial love where you give up stuff for God? Well, maybe sometimes we'll pray instead of eating. You know the opposite of fasting? It's in the middle of the sermon thinking, hmm, I wonder if the oven's switched on yet. I'm trying to cook a chook at home. That's the opposite of fasting. Fasting is where we concentrate on God and we give up something because of that. They worshipped, they prayed, they fasted. Not because it was part of the church growth model. Not because somebody had made it a rule, you've got to do all of these things. Not because somebody had read it in a book that somebody else had started doing these things in their church and their church had grown, so if we do it, then our church is going to grow. They worshipped, they prayed and they fasted because these things are natural behaviours of a heart devoted to God. That's what it gets down to. They're natural behaviours of a heart devoted to God. Fourthly, they were a church who sent people out. And that would have cost them. They were willing to send out the very best of their leaders. You know, I heard it said once that a, a church missionary organisation had the motto, if you won't miss them, we don't want them. That's a pretty good motto. Pretty good motto for missionaries. 
Um, you know, I still remember what it cost our church in Dolby when they sent out two key families. There was our family and John and Catherine Reilly and the, really and or rule, depending on how you like to pronounce it. Um, and we left that church in the same year. That church sent both of us off to Bible college in the same year. They lost two key families and both those families were very involved in the church. And I knew as we were going, as, as that church sent us, that it was going to cost them. And it did. But it also amazed me how God has a way of continuing his work. The plant doesn't stop growing. It just continues to grow and continues to spread. And when the Holy Spirit said to Paul and Barnabas, or actually said to the church, send them out, they fasted, they prayed, the church laid hands on them and they said, we're sending you. And that's why verse 4 tells us that the Holy Spirit sent them and earlier we're told that the church sent them because that church at Antioch were devoted to God, they listened to God and they obeyed God. So, their trip began and they head off, they head off across to the coast down to Seleucia. We got the map there, please. Um, mightn't be able to see it so well from there. But they start off at Antioch, go across to Seleucia, head across to Cyprus, to Salamis, and they preached the word of God. They started preaching there at Salamis. And then they preached their way right across the island of Cyprus, right across the other side to Paphos. And at Paphos is where they got some opposition from Satan. One thing you can be sure of is when God's doing something good, Satan's going to be trying to undo it. What happened? Sergius Paulus was the proconsul or the governor of Cyprus. That sounds very important, doesn't it? And yes, it was. He was Romans, the, the Romans' main ruler there on the island of Cyprus. He was the most important person on the island. And we're told, basically, this fellow was no fool. He was described as a man of intelligence. And when he heard about Saul and Barnabas, he summoned them because he wanted to hear the word of God. Now, you know, I said earlier, it's usually not the most important people that God calls? God usually calls the nobodies? Well, every now and then, God does choose someone of influence like he did in this case. And thats it's a great thing when God does choose somebody of influence to become a witness for him. And, um, of course, Satan hates it because when a person of influence becomes a Christian, they can do a lot to um, spread the good news of Jesus. And so there was a Jewish false prophet uh, who used to have the ear of the governor and his name is Bar-Jesus. Now that means son of Jesus. Bar means son of. So his name meant son of Jesus. Now I've told you before, Jesus was, was a very common name back then. Um, so Bar-Jesus means son of Jesus, just like the other character here, Barnabas means son of encouragement. Anyway, Bar-Jesus, this false prophet, opposed Paul and Barnabas and he tried to turn the governor away from the faith. But Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy, 
will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? You see, his name meant son of Jesus. And of course, Jesus means one who saves. So his name meant son of one who saves. But Paul's really saying, you're not the son of Jesus. You're the son of the devil. I reckon there's something important here for us. My experience has been in Australia today, the biggest opposition that we find to the work of God comes from inside the church. Most people outside of the church, well, they're actually just disinterested. And so they just ignore Christ. They ignore the work of God. But within the church... There are some who claim to be sons of Jesus, but they're not. They're actually sons of the devil. How do we tell? Well, Paul says of this fellow that he's an enemy of righteousness. He's full of deceit and villainy. And what was he doing? He was making crooked the straight paths of the Lord. The gospel message is simple. Repent of your sin, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ um, and, and the salvation that we have through, through his grace and his mercy. It's something that he gives us. It's not something that we earn. Be baptised and then follow Christ in his ways of righteousness. That's what we call discipleship. Any attempt to divert someone from that path is not the work of a son of God. It's the work of the son of the devil. He has set a straight path and he intends us to follow that path. And any diversion off of that, any diversion that onto the crooked path is a distraction from the devil. And through Paul, the Holy Spirit put Bar-Jesus in his place and actually the same thing that happened to Bar-Jesus is what happened to Paul. When Paul was on the road to Damascus, he was on his way to do exactly the same thing. He was, he was hunting down these Christians to turn them away from the path that they, the way they called themselves. And he was struck blind. And Paul does the same thing to this fellow. He says, you're not going to be able to see. And he couldn't even see the sun. Now, that's pretty blind. Anyway, the story has a happy ending, at least for the proconsul. We don't know what happened to Bar-Jesus. The proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. And it's important for us to get something here. This governor, he was a man of intelligence. He was no dummy. He wasn't going to be taken for a ride. He didn't become a believer because Paul had done a neat trick by sending this fellow blind we're clearly told that he believed for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. And if our faith rests on miracles or signs and wonders, then that's a very shallow faith indeed. They might be the thing which tips us over, but if that's what our faith is in, then we're missing something critical. Faith that endures is a faith that is based on the teaching of the Lord because that's what we respond to. We don't respond to miracles. We respond to the life-changing word of God. Signs and wonders 
are designed to make us sit up and take notice of the word of God. That's the place of signs and wonders, to make us sit up and take notice of the word of God. And it's the word of God, the teaching of the word of God that we respond to. So, where to from here? My prayer is for the kingdom of God to grow, for it to go right here in this town and in this district. And I pray that it will grow not through our plans and strategies, but because we've become a people who are devoted to God, that we've become a people who seek God, listen to God and obey his Holy Spirit. I also pray that we together as a church will be a fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Being a people who come from all sorts of different walks of life, coming together in the fellowship of the Spirit. That we would encourage one another to serve God and encourage one another to use the spiritual gifts that he's given us. And we'd encourage one another to pray for and ask God for those spiritual gifts that we would be a worshipping and praying church, not because we're compelled to do so or because it's a plan or a strategy, but because our hearts are devoted to God. And I pray that we would be a mission church, that we would be a church who send people out on mission. Even though it will cost us, It costs a small church enormously when we send people out on mission. But that's my prayer. It's a pretty big prayer. But I can see God doing it. I believe God will do it. Because God's kingdom will grow. God's kingdom is still that small seed that grows into a large plant. And it's been growing ever since the day it began. And it's spreading and it's continuing to spread. I don't think it's going to get lopped off here. It's going to continue to grow. I can see God doing that. Can you? I've got a lot of blank expressions, a few nods. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what I just said there, that is my prayer. Lord, I pray that, well, first of all, Lord, I want to thank you that your kingdom has been growing ever since it started out there in Jerusalem and it spread to Antioch and then across to Cyprus. We're going to see how over the next few weeks and months how how your kingdom kept on spreading. And Lord, somehow it ended up here in Australia and at St George. Somehow your kingdom spread out into our hearts and our lives. And Lord, I want to thank you that your kingdom is going to continue to grow. Lord, what a blessing that will be for us if we have a part in that knowing, of course, that we have nothing to offer you, only our availability. But, Lord, I I just ask now that this would become a personal prayer for each of us here, Lord. Lord, 
I give you my availability. Lord, I know I'm not worthy. I know that I have nothing to offer you. Any physical talents I have, Lord, they're already yours. I give them to you. But Lord, I ask that you'll equip me, fill me with your Holy Spirit. Give me your, the spiritual gifts, Lord, the gifts of your Holy Spirit so that I can serve you for your glory, that your kingdom will grow through your doing. Lord, give me a heart which is devoted to you, setting everything else aside. And from that heart of devotion, Lord, may I worship and pray and fast and seek you with a heart filled for for the love of my Saviour. And Lord, speak to us. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.